But the climate crisis is different. It's an existential threat to all life on Earth. And it's not something which we can kick down the road any longer. The science is very, very clear. If we don't tackle it now, we'll pass certain tipping points. It was American astronomer Carl Sagan who famously described Earth as a pale blue dot. He was referring to the oceans and water, which cover 70% of the Earth. Few humans know these oceans as intimately as a man who has swam vast distances in them for decades. He is Lewis Pugh, a man with a message. And once we pass those tipping points, no amount of wealth, no amount of political will will save us. My name is Lewis Pugh. I'm the United Nations patron of the oceans. I've been swimming for 35 years in some of the most remote parts of our world. Over that time, I've seen huge changes to our environment as a direct result of climate change, pollution, and overconsumption. Protecting the environment is now the defining issue of our generation. We need all hands on deck to help solve this crisis. podcast is brought to you by Jojo, a proud supporter of South Africa's water activists and a proud supplier of water solutions for a better quality of life. By protecting our most precious resource, Jojo's quality products help to safeguard the well-being of people, communities and the environment. Please enjoy today's episode, a celebration of all things water and the people working tirelessly to protect it. You're listening to For Water For Life, the podcast that tells extraordinary stories of ordinary people and water. They've made it their mission to preserve, purify, and protect the water supply where we live, in a water-scarce and unequal country called South Africa. And further afield too, because water is a global story. I'm Gugule Tumshlongo. And I'm Michelle Constant. For decades, British South African swimmer and climate change activist Lewis Pugh has drawn attention to the plight of the ocean through endurance swimming. He swam in the freezing cold in the North Pole, across a glacial lake on Mount Everest and under the Antarctic ice sheet. He recently returned from swimming the Alulisat Ice Fjord in the Arctic Circle, a World Heritage Site. The vast glacier at the foot of the fjord keeps changing shape as you round it. Majestic, shimmering cathedrals become craggy cliffs, become futuristic caves carved from a mountain of ice. But this glacier is melting. The phrase Lewis uses to describe the region he's chosen to swim this year is ground zero. And the Alulasad Glacier is now the fastest moving glacier in the world. So it's moving at a speed of 40 meters per day in summer. 40 meters per day. And so it was the obvious place to carry a message about what's happening in Greenland and how this will impact all of us all over the world, even here in South Africa. If the Greenland ice sheet uh, were to melt, it would result in a seven meter sea level rise. So it would impact, you know, many, many, many cities around the world, London, New York, Tokyo, countries like Bangladesh, almost everywhere would be impacted by a seven meter sea level rise. So what is this ground zero, this place where the story of our waters starts? 
The Greenland ice sheet, just to explain the geography, the Greenland ice sheet is the second biggest in the world, and on the west coast of Greenland, uh, it moves into a glacier called the Alulasat Glacier, and the Alulasat is the Inuit name for the place of icebergs, and so you have a long fjord, which is about 60 kilometers long, and at the head of it is this glacier, and the icebergs carving off this glacier some of them are over a kilometer tall. I mean, it's astonishing to see it. You only see the top bit of it, but underneath you probably got 900 meters of ice. And for this 60 kilometers of this field, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of icebergs all packed in, all pushing their way out into the ocean, into the Davis Strait, into the sea. And to be there and to witness it is astonishing. Uh, on one of the days of the swim, one of the very big icebergs which was at the mouth of this field dislodged. And within minutes, thousands of icebergs were pushing through this gap out into the sea. And it was like a motorway of ice. And so swimming in this, in, in this water was, yeah, I mean, there were some small icebergs which were the size of suitcases, but there were some big ones which were literally a kilometer tall and absolutely massive, massive, huge tabular icebergs. I always say to world leaders when, when, when I try to describe to them what's happening in the polar regions, that ice is essential for life on Earth. What ice does, it keeps our planet within a temperature range in which we can live. And I say to them, no ice, no life. We now need to protect these polar regions. We need to do everything we can now to tackle this climate crisis to ensure that these polar regions don't continue the melting which is rapidly underway now. As this icy landscape morphs and changes, it is also filled with the present, the sounds of Inuit life. And then there's the ancient history of these icebergs, trapped deep within the massive forms. I mean, to be in Alulasat, you only hear three sounds. So it's not like Cape Town and Pretoria, where you're, you're hearing a, a bustling city. When you're in the middle of the fjord, all you hear are three sounds. You hear the wind, you hear the Greenlandic dogs or the huskies barking, especially when it comes to dinner time. So all the Inuit uh, hunters and fishermen, they all have big packs of huskies outside their huts. But the last sound you hear is obviously the crashing of these icebergs and the carving of these icebergs of the glacier. And when you're swimming, what you hear though, when you put your head in the water, is the, the sound, the bubbling sound of air that was trapped in that ice thousands and thousands of years ago being released. And it sounds a little bit like Rice Krispies. Swimming here requires grit, technology and teamwork. Early in the morning before he swims, Lewis is required to swallow a small tablet which logs his core body temperature. An hour later, he's in the icy water. When I'm swimming, it's pure survival. So swimming is, I think, it's the only sport in the world where you operate on three axes. So your head moves left to right, your arms move around and around, your legs move up and down. And you've got to get those in sync. And if any one of those is not in sync, then you're going to be fighting the water. But I can promise you that when you take that and you put it in water, which is zero degrees, you are just fighting. So it's survival. 
So yes, I, I very rarely spend time listening to the icebergs. I'm just concentrating on trying to make each stroke count and move in a forward direction. And I'm also speaking with my crew on the boat with hand signals. You won't believe how quickly these icebergs move. I can be waiting to undertake a swim and I'm just about to get my clothes off and suddenly a massive iceberg, which is, which is a kilometer tall, has moved in our way. So we spend a little bit of time making sure everything's safe. I then immediately take off my clothes. And in the old days, I used to dive in. But now the science has moved on. Now I slowly submerge myself into the water, up to my knees for 15 seconds, up to my chest for another 15 seconds, and then I must go. And I must commit 100% and swim hard and fast. And then every single minute, my doctor is looking at me, giving me signals. And we predetermined how long I can swim for. It's 10 minutes. As soon as I get out, then it's a very rapid process. I dry myself, I get myself dressed into a big thermal gear, into a sleeping bag, into two sleeping bags, three hot water bottles, a drink of hot chocolate. And then it takes around about two, two and a half hours to actually rewarm after the swim. And once that's finished, it's then back in to do the second session of the day to get across this enormous field. For Lewis, this swim was his last stand, the final opportunity to argue for the oceans of the pale blue dot. So I've been swimming for 35 years, 18 of those have been in the polar regions. And every year I'm up there, swimming there, swimming in places which have been frozen over, highlighting what is happening. Afterwards, going and meeting government ministers, environment ministers, heads of state, saying to them, please, we need to do something about this. This is happening faster and quicker. You know, the Secretary General of the United Nations just last month issued what he described as a code red. And in some ways, I have felt like I have been a voice in the wilderness, actually in the wilderness. I know there are lots and lots of scientists who are doing incredible work, lots of diplomats who are working around the clock and, and environmental charities around the clock who are working so hard to highlight this issue. But when you're out there on your own in the ice, appealing to world leaders, sometimes you pray that they are listening. Lewis intends to spend a little more time on land from now on. At the end of this swim, which took 14 days, I, I said to myself, you know, you're now 51 years old. This is extremely dangerous. When you get into that water, be under no illusion you're on the edge of life and death. I must now focus more on the advocacy, focus more on being the UN patron of the oceans, there will be other places to swim. I'm not retiring from swimming. I hope to swim until the last day of my life. But, but in, in warmer waters and highlighting other issues, whether it be the serious overfishing or the, or the widespread plastic pollution, but going up into the polar regions every single year, carrying this message, I think Ilulisat was my last stand. His message remains clear. You know, every generation has an opportunity to change the world. 
to make it safer, to make it more just, to make it more sustainable. We must be that generation. But he worries it's still not being heard. I cringe, uh, Michelle, whenever I hear a world leader make commitments for 2050 or 2060. Oh, we'll cut our carbon emissions by, you know, 60, 70, 80 percent by 2050. And you know full well that they will not be there to ensure that it actually happens. There's not a political leader or a business leader in the world that won't make a commitment for 2050, 2060. The commitments have got to be much shorter. The action has got to be much quicker. Sunny South Africa may think that the icy poles are a world away, but they're not. Yeah, I mean, so, so this is the big challenge. So w- whether it be what's happening in the Arctic or what's happening down in Antarctica, you know, Antarctica is just 4,000 kilometers away from South Africa. What happens down in Antarctica will also hugely impact South Africa. We need to join the dots. We need to join the dots about the floods which happened this year in Germany and Belgium, the fires which took place in Turkey and and in California, the zombie fires which took place in in Siberia, the storms, the hurricane, the bleaching of the coral reefs of the world. You know, these things may be happening a long way away from us, but they will have a significant impact on us. Especially Cape Town, Durban, Port Elizabeth, East London, and all the country's coastal cities will be at risk of flooding. And that's my message to world leaders and, and my message to, to, to South Africa as well, that, that we have to play our part now in cutting our carbon emissions together with the rest of the world to ensure that we're able to avert uh, this, this impeding disaster. But how do we play our part and who gets involved? Is it you? Is it me? Is it how we educate our children? Take 10-year-old Romario Valentine from South Africa's lush coastal KwaZulu-Natal province. Romario describes himself as an eco-warrior and an eco-artist. He's joined a global climate movement that's growing younger and more urgent. And he's been playing his part for four years already, thanks to the killer whales. When I was six years old, I was an orca in a school play. I did a search with my mother and discovered that orcas were in danger. I decided to do something about it by cleaning the beach weekly. I love being creative and began making eco art instead of throwing the trash away to help protect the environment. To date, I've done 108 beach cleans. I use gloves and bony biodegradable bags to collect the pollutants. They are made from cornstalk. When I'm on the beach, when I'm cleaning, taking the trash, the litter and stuff, it makes me feel happy that I'm protecting the turtles. Romario is an ambassador for eco-projects around the world. He recently teamed up with the United Nations Convention to combat desertification, to help fight land degradation and a loss of biodiversity in Africa. He's part of an international tree planting campaign and he's the youngest ambassador for Ocean Soul, a Kenyan environmental organization that promotes marine conservation by recycling old rubber flip-flops and turning them into artworks and toys. All of these issues have one thing in common, water or a lack of it, and change starts at home for Romario.
water by using rainwater for my vegetable garden. We also store rainwater in our jojo tank for bathing. I've also planted a few baobab trees. They are drought resistant and when it rains, the water gets stored in their hollow trunks, which is great for biodiversity. Apart from the rainwater, I also store the rainwater like in a bucket and then I use the bucket to water the plant. As this young man dons his eco-warrior cape and paints eco-pictures of the Neisner to Rocco, he continues to work for a world where we are all better citizens who can act to slow down global warming. That's Romario imitating a Taraco, a colorful bird also known as a Nizna Luri. I'm concerned about children going hungry and birds becoming extinct. I hope that will change in the future. I would also like to see an international children's tree planting day where world leaders and tree organizations team up with schools and communities to plant trees together. Children involved in reforestation programs from a young age will help them become better citizens for the environment and slow down global warming. It's critical that we discover the eco-warrior and activist in all of us. As Lewis Pugh says, everything we do from now on in is a decision about our future. Ultimately, when it comes to tackling the climate crisis, that will be done at a city or a, or a village or a, you know, a town level. So, you know, world leaders can make these commitments, but ultimately it's all played out at a, at a city level. And cities need to make themselves more resilient to the climate crisis. It's certainly coming down the road. And whether it be ensuring that you have the, the necessary response plan or whether it be protecting your water supplies or whether it be ensuring that you are resilient to floods and droughts, that all has to be done at a municipal level and at a, at a town and city level. When it comes to ordinary members of the public, I think that's where we really can have a big impact. I always say to, to members of the, uh, of the public who say, you know, what can I do? This feels so overwhelming. And I say to them that every single purchase which you make on a daily basis is a decision about our future. It's a decision about our children and it's a decision about the animal kingdom. Both Lewis and Romario are clear. This fight starts with each one of us and here's how. So whether it be the clothes you wear, the food you eat, uh, how you get to, to work, how you get your children to school, if you've got any spare money, how you invest that, every single one of those is a decision about our future. And all I ask ordinary members of the public to do is to ask themselves every day, how can I ensure that the decisions I'm making, the purchases I'm making are as environmentally friendly as possible? Because if we do that, and we do that on a daily basis, and multiply it over 7.9 billion people in the world, that makes a real big difference. And it will also transform the economy. So, you know, businesses uh, respond to customer demand. And when the customers are demanding more environmentally friendly products, more environmentally friendly services, then they will respond. Fighting for our pale blue dot, that's Lewis Pugh, global eco-warrior and ocean activist, as well as Romario Valentine from KwaZulu-Natal. Join us next time as we chat to Yunus Ubomba-Jazwa and Yazid van Veik, two water researchers, and they'll answer this question. If water doesn't come from a tap, where does it come from?
you, you don't see it. The only thing you see is your tap. You open your tap, is there water or not? As we see taps, you know, and that's where the water comes from. But in actual fact, that water that comes out of that tap is actually being managed by your local municipality. So we need to think very carefully, I think, around what comes before the tap and also what comes after the tap and where that water goes. But finding the answers is for another episode where we will follow the water. I'm Michelle Constant. And I'm Gugulia Tumflungo. Thank you for listening. All of our podcasts are available at jojo.co.za. The series was made possible because of Jojo, for water, for life. Find us on social media at For Water For Life and share your water stories using the hashtag listen to the water, because if you do, it can change your life. From the Jojo family to yours, we hope you enjoyed this episode of For Water For Life. Whether you're looking for top quality storage tanks, water filters or other water solutions, Jojo has a product ideal for you. Discover our range at jojo.co.za and find us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram for all the latest product news and water-related content.